It, it takes probably a coach to be able to put it in your head that you can run with the best, but once it's there, I think then I realized, okay, well, if I can do it, you know, in this race, then I can do it, you know, moving forward. I'm sitting here with Alex Monroe, and we are, what, four days after New York City Marathon currently, and we've got a lot to talk about because... One, we have to introduce you because you joined our group in May and we haven't done one of these podcasts to kind of give a little history about who you are and where you're from and what you've run. But you also made your marathon debut in New York City. And then we'll talk a little bit about what you're looking forward to moving forward. Since you joined us in May, the marathon has kind of been the focus. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I wanted to do the marathon for a long time, but last year after doing the 5K championships and watching you know, the marathon the following day, I realized that that was uh, something that I wanted to do before um, 2020 came around. And New York was the one. New York was the one, and I um, have a lot of history with the city in terms of you know growing up in Pennsylvania. I got to go to the city quite a bit, and so um, that felt like home for me. Where did, where did you go to undergrad? Let's let's dive a little bit into your backstory. So, New York, we know is like kind of what the, top, the dominant topic is going to be for for tonight. But uh, give us a little backstory of where you grew up, where where you went to school, what your PRs were in college. Okay, yeah, um, I grew up in small town Pennsylvania, um, dead in the center in Lewistown, and probably thirty minutes outside of where Penn State was. Uh, after high school, I went to Lock Haven University, so a Division II school, um, about 45 minutes away from Penn State. Um, I didn't really want to go to a big D1 school um, growing up so close to there, so I decided that Lock Haven was probably the best fit for me, and then I had a really great uh, four-year experience there. And yet, PRs in college, I was mainly a cross-country runner, so I really excelled there, um, highest finish being third place at Nationals, and then um, in track... Um, getting down to 14.09 in 5K, and then 29.42 for 10K. Which is pretty solid for D2. It got you to nationals, right? It did, yeah. Um, track was a little, uh, a bit on the weak side for me, but uh, cross country, yeah, all four years and improved each year. And then after college, you moved out to Boulder almost immediately, correct? I did. I had looked at a couple groups, but then I had some friends, um, actually, that went to Lock Haven with me and they moved out here for reasons other than running but they asked if I wanted to come out and visit and I actually ended up just packing my bags that week and uh, filling my car and driving out and living with them for um, yeah what was what became like three years actually. Was the adjustment up to altitude after growing up down Pennsylvania tough at all? Had you had you come up to altitude prior? Uh, I had actually raced at altitude so track nationals for us we're in Pueblo one year, and uh, that was a shock to the system, obviously, coming from sea level. So, yeah, once I got out here, the adjustment was pretty much to be expected. I mean, I think six months in, I started feeling normal again, but I also was coming back from injury, so I think I had a little bit more of a grace period getting into things out here. So, And when you first moved out, like you said, 2940 for 10K, um, it took you a little bit to kind of get used to altitude and racing on the professional level. What was that first year like from that transition, going from a D2 college kid with some decent success, but now having to race a lot of post-collegiates? Yeah, I think 
obviously the first year was pretty hard. Um, I was coming back from a sacral stress fracture, so um, I took me a while to just get fit again. But once I was, then I kind of just went uh, head first into whatever I could do in, in terms of racing the best. And um, yeah, I ended up having a ton of success that second year. So the first year was really just about getting back into shape, um, getting used to racing outside of the college system. And then the, the following year was really just putting all that to, to work and um, being able to kind of uh, use what I had done um, at altitude for that first year. So. And what were your PRs that second year? Uh, so I ended up going to Stanford and running 28.17, which was obviously a, a big PR coming from um, 29.40 in college. And then I ran, I broke 14 for the first time, um, which was also a, a pretty big um, chunk of time off for me. And then, uh, yeah, just tried to race some cross country and race um, a little bit more on the roads because my experience on the roads was not... Um, it was really non-existent. Actually, I didn't race on the roads until post-college anyways. Do you remember what your first big road race was? Uh, I would say Gate River 15K, which my first year was not good. But um, after that, yeah, I started to kind of get the hang of the roads, which was um, what I realized what I would be doing um, now. So when you, when you graduated from college, did you think the marathon was something that you'd eventually want to do, or did you think you'd stick to the shorter stuff? No, I thought the marathon would be exactly what I would end up in. I just kept getting better as as the distance went up. So, twenty eight seventeen, first ten k out of college, minute and a half PR. That had to have been pretty exciting. Yeah, that was um, kind of a shock. I hadn't had a ton of breakthroughs up until that point, but it was kind of one of those days where the stars align and. You kind of just tuck in with the pack and go for it, and uh, yeah, it ended up paying off, and uh, that was a huge day for me. Did you focus on splits at all, or were you just stay connected as long as I possibly It was just can? stay connected to that group as long as I could and, and try and cover every move until I couldn't anymore. So I joke sometimes, like, you're probably the fastest guy in America that no, not many people have heard of, <laughs> because you've run 28.17, you've run, what, 13.36? You've run sixty-two forty-eight in your second half marathon. You're a pretty introverted guy, which is probably part of it. You're not someone that's posting a lot on social media. You're not very outspoken when it comes to like talking about what you're going to do going into a race or even what you've done coming out of a race. Does it bother you at all not having any of the, like some of that recognition that like some of the guys with similar times might have had? Uh, no, I don't want to. I don't want to garner that recognition just from social media alone or from being um, more outspoken. I think like a lot of my success has come from just putting my head down and working hard. And so if the recognition is there, great. And if it's not, I'm going to continue to do it this way because that's what has brought me success. What do you feel like is one of your biggest strengths when it comes to, to racing? Uh, I'm not afraid for the hurt to come in, in terms of, uh, you know, just hitting rough patches and races. Like I know that's all part of it. And so, um, that part doesn't scare me, and so I am really af like not afraid to go out with whoever it is, you know, whether it's you know uh, the best in the world or whether it's um, just a small local race. Um, I like to put myself in it, and so you know my strength has always been just running uh, pretty fearless. Was that how it was when you were a freshman in college, or did it kind of take you a little bit to develop that? Uh, no, it, it it really has like probably stemmed from actually high school, where I just decided that. Um, it, it takes probably a coach to be able to put it in your head that you can run with the best, but once it's there, I think then I realized, okay, well, if I can do it, you know, in this race, then I can do it, you know, moving forward. Do you think sometimes that gets you into trouble? 
Like when you get might get in over your head a little bit? Potentially, but also I think, you know, a lot of people will view it as careless, but I view it as giving myself a chance and, and that's where I've had my breakthroughs. And so, yeah, it doesn't pay off every time. And, and, but at the same note, you, you know, you have to give yourself a chance if you want to see those huge breakthroughs. Now, uh, something you said just now, like you want to give yourself a chance. Now you're, you like most athletes, especially at the professional scale, you're, you're a perfectionist. You want the work that you're putting in on a day-to-day basis translate into what that result might be. When it comes to the days that like don't go the way that you want them to, when you you like you like you said you want to give yourself a chance, but if it doesn't end up being the way that that you anticipated, what it what does it take for you to kind of work yourself through that? Like, does it motivate you to work harder, smarter, stronger, or whatever it might be? Does it like? fire you up to get back on a starting line? Do you have to decompress for a little bit? Personally, I have to decompress a little bit. I think, you know, at this level, we put a lot of work into just about every race. And so when it doesn't turn out the way you want, then it kind of requires um, a little bit of uh, analyzing and, and going over it a lot. And so for me, you know, that requires just a little bit of decompression, like I said, but also, um, you also can't dwell too long, and so once I'm done doing that, then it's focusing on what comes next and, and what I can do to improve on some of that consistency. And so, you know, I think for any runner, if you can find some consistency where you're you're hitting races out of the park um, more frequently, I think then that's really where, like, that's where I want to see myself. Um, but it's a really hard thing to do. It's, it's, like I said, everybody goes through waves of good races and bad. Um, but I... But I also believe that if you can find that consistency and ride that as long as you can, um, you can really see a lot of great results from that. Now, one thing that's unique, like you were making your marathon debut at New York, you don't race a lot on the buildups to a lot of these bigger marathons. Um, was that a tough adjustment? Do you normally like to race a little bit more? I think the system I was in previously re- required racing yourself into shape. And so that was what I was used to, but I wouldn't say I liked it more. Um it was an adjustment racing on tired legs. So I was pretty used to tapering for uh, every race, big or small, and then also tapering for like every workout it felt like. Um, and so this was the first time where kind of going back to actually college where I wasn't tapering for every race. Um, then I was, you know, in this system, I'm more training through races, um, but also using them as, as sessions. And so frustrating to not get the results that I necessarily wanted if I had backed off for it but at the same time I knew it was um, the best and smartest move for New York is that is that tough to do psychologically like to know that like like when you're going to a race it's like you want to perform well yeah but it's like in the back of your mind you also know you're not as rested as some of the guys you're competing against I think if I didn't have a marathon in the background of everything, then it would have been more frustrating. But knowing that I had that coming, then I was able to accept that, yeah, racing on tired legs wasn't going to necessarily go the way that I had wanted um, if I had backed off for it. So fast forward now to New York. Let's talk about the beautiful tragedy of a marathon (laughs) debut. So to give people some context, this was Alex's first, first marathon. New York is a relatively hilly course. It's also a world marathon major. So the people that you're competing against are very good. And a lot of the guys on the American side who you're familiar with are also more experienced marathoners. I think the only 
people debuting were you and Bernard Lagat. And Lagat obviously is a very accomplished runner himself. With that going in, were you nervous? Were you excited to race a lot of the American guys that you were competing against? And two, to be at a world marathon major for that debut, knowing that like the competition, like it's, it's hard to gain confidence. Say, say you have like a decent day, you might still be 16th overall versus if you go to a smaller marathon, maybe you're finishing top three. Yeah, I knew what I was getting into. I think any time that you go to a major, um, you look at the fields and they're almost always loaded. And so New York was going to be no different. And I think I was hoping to make more of a splash in terms of what I was able to do. Um, but also, I'm not, again, like I said before, going to uh, shy away from going out with some of those guys. I think that's where I would see success if I had a day out. And um yeah, so that was that was really the goal behind it, and not to let um, the size of that field or the accomplishments of that field take over and um, deter me from what I was like planning to execute there. Now, like I said, beautiful tragedy of a marathon debut, <laughs> and whether you like that phrase or not, like it kind of describes what the day was, right? Like you go out aggressive. I think we were talking earlier. Someone like Meb, I think his marathon debut on that course was 2.12.30. And Meb, being one of the greatest marathoners the U.S. has ever had, like 2.12.30 is a decent debut, but it's also not like a world-class time. And so we know that the, the times are going to be a little bit slower, but you were 66.09 through halfway, which is 2.12.18 pace. So pretty fast. And But the guys, the group that you were with was made up of a predominant number of those American guys. So you felt in good company. And you were able to hold that pace until about mile 18 before things started turning the opposite direction in a way that no marathoner wants to find their race going. Where you start hitting that metaphysical wall where your little body just starts shutting down. You ended up running 226. I think you were 10th American on the day, and which sounds great. You were 10th American <laughs> on the day, yeah. but at the same time, like it's not it's not the day that you <clears throat> had envisioned for your debut. But like I told you before we started recording this, I was pretty encouraged by the day because you were able to hold 212, 218, uh, 212, 213 pace through mile 18 in your debut. You gave yourself a chance to run a fast time. It didn't happen. Now we have to figure out how to help you sustain that for the last eight miles. Kind of take me through, I know you and I have talked about, but take those listening through kind of how the race played out, how it unfolded, why you got out so aggressive. Um, would you have done anything different? Yeah, so the the race started and um, I felt actually as good as I had ever felt probably leading uh, leading the first mile with that American group, um, what kind of found myself in a chase pack and, you know, checked mile splits, uh, every, every so often just to make sure that I wasn't getting ahead of myself. And it felt so easy to the point where, you know, I said, okay, well, um, we're definitely on the fast side, but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If I, if I feel like I'm overexerting, then I'm going to back off. And so, you know, through halfway, still feeling fine. 
and then it kind of hits you where you know it it's really out of your control at that point and so i i started having some spotty vision started kind of swerving all over the place and then everything just kind of shuts down um and so at that point it's really more of a survival than um you know pushing through it and being able to finish it's the first time in a race where i felt like i was going to have a day and then where i realized that i was about to have a really bad day um that usually i can figure out within the first mile of a race but in the marathon now i'm i'm knowing that you know it can turn pretty quickly um and it's it's tough to rebound that too right like it's tough to get that composure back to like uh, incremental goal of like five seconds per mile that sounds so daunting in that moment yeah and and it was one of those things where i thought okay if i can get to my next bottle maybe maybe i'm just having a little bit of a crash and we you know we talk a lot about going through some rough patches in the marathon because it's such a long race and so um i didn't really start losing hope until after 20 and then at that point i don't really remember um, the last couple miles of the race and so um, i ended up finding a teammate on the course a, a former college teammate and um we just decided that we were going to run together to the finish, not the way that obviously I wanted to, to end it. Um, but I was still happy to finish. I think if I'm going to take any positive away, it's that, um, that's the worst I've heard. And it's also not something that I'm afraid of. Um, I, if I had to do it again, I'd go through it again. Um, and I also found strength to finish, which at, you know, at some point, I'll probably feel that way again, but it may never be as bad as that. When you were saying the spotty vision, like you told me at one point, like it, it almost felt like you were nauseous going from the dark to the light, like the underpass to the back into the sun. And at one point you thought your vision was playing with you. So you lifted your sunglasses up and it was like still black. Well, I thought I actually thought I had uh, spots on my sunglasses. And so when I lifted them and I was under an overpass at the time, um, I realized that the spots were just in my eyes. They weren't necessarily on my glasses. And so, um, and that was like 20, wasn't it? Like, it was 20. Oh. I went under some underpass and, yeah. and I noticed the spots more under there. And so whenever I, I flipped up my glasses to obviously wipe it away, I realized that it was actually in my eyes. And so I didn't even know I was bonking. Um, I knew I was slowing down, but I thought it was more so just because the hills were actually pretty tough at that time. And then um, obviously... <laughs> It was more of like, okay, maybe if I get to, again, like I said, my, my next bottle or if I can get past 20, then um, maybe I'll find something else for the last 10K. Um, and then, yeah, I don't remember much after that. So Yeah, it reminds me, like, I, I remember reading a quote from Molly Huddle at Boston. Like, Boston obviously was awful weather this year. But she talks about, like, where she thought there was water in her eyes. So she kept wiping her eyes. And then realized it was like blurred vision that was starting to occur because yeah. she was getting so depleted and so hypothermic. Yeah. You obviously weren't going hypothermic no. in that moment, but you were clearly like calorically depleted in that moment. Um, but you were also doing a decent job of getting down your fluids. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about like nausea and stuff with like that with getting your bottles. You didn't experience that, correct? No, no GI issues or, or nausea. Um, obviously, I did have it after the race, but... Yeah, I got every bottle and I got them all down um, to the line that we had kind of prescribed and um, everything in training had pointed to actually having my nutrition down. So it's pretty ironic that going into the race, that was the most confident I was about that. Um, If there was anything that was going to be a limiting factor, I didn't actually think it was going to be that. So, you know, you learn something and that's the important part, but also um, caught me off guard for sure. Well, and that's something that we... I mean, when you look back at the pace, like the fast early pace is probably depleting you a little bit quicker than, than we anticipate. 
um, you're getting down the necessary fluid, but maybe it wasn't enough to sustain based on the effort that was being exerted. Um, like you said, you, at six, what was it, 15 or 16, you look back, there really wasn't a second group to try to go there with. There wasn't, no. I was with Chris, Chris Thompson at the time, and I asked him if we were clear because he kept turning around, and he said, yeah, we're fine. There's nobody in sight. And so we actually both, I thought he felt fine at the time. I knew I felt fine. I wasn't breathing. And so going down the Queensboro Bridge, I thought, okay, um, let's get to 20 and see what I can do. Um, and I was more than confident at that point. So it's really um, kind of crazy how quick it can turn. But again, I was... I was also expecting it to maybe turn at some point, just not that early. So or that bad. Or too. that badly. Yeah. Correct. Like you're you're expecting to maybe slow down a little bit, but like I mean we saw it with a lot like as like I told you before, we saw it with a lot of guys that were in that group. I think the only one from that group that was able to maintain pace was Scott Bobble, yeah. who had himself a great day. Yeah. Um everyone else in that group kind of faded. Like Ryan Vale ended up running what two fourteen or two fifteen, I think uh, Scott Smith ended up running two seventeen, Legat who was ahead of you ended up running two seventeen or two eighteen, right. Abdi who was ahead of you ended up dropping out. Um, it was one of those things where you went out hard, but you went out hard with also experienced marathoners, and it's not like they were spared from that earlier pace. Right. So it's a learning curve. You're finding the threshold at which your body can tolerate for that distance, for that pace. And it's something that, one, you can gain confidence that you're able to hang with some pretty good guys that have all been able to run pretty fast at that distance through 18, 19 on a tough course and the first time that you're doing that that distance. But it also highlights to us some of the things that we know that we can do differently, whether it be in training with certain stimuluses or nutrition with pushing caloric intake a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Now afterwards, one, how sore were you? Uh, I was very sore, but I think I was more so concerned about, so I had an Achilles injury during the buildup and more so concerned about how that was going to, um, I guess, respond to running uh, that distance and that hard. And surprisingly enough, that actually wasn't the limiting factor. Going into the race, I was certain that if anything was going to keep me from um, running well, it was going to be that. Surprisingly enough, um, even the days leading into it, I had some pain. But then um, after that, uh, getting on the line and starting, I had uh, zero pain. And I don't know if that's adrenaline. I don't know if I just had a day where it didn't bother me. But um, I was lucky enough to really not have any issues. And then even afterwards, I was more so just sore in general instead of uh, the Achilles being the reason why I was really, really sore. The stairs are always difficult. Stairs are difficult, Curves. yeah, trying to, if you drop something and having to pick it up, that hasn't been great at work. Um, just sitting in general uh, is a bit of a task, but um, the soreness is going away, which is great, and uh, I'm looking forward to just jogging here for the next week, getting yeah, back into the flow you, of things. You jog the next day. Yeah, I jog the next day, so I went to Central Park and just did a little bit of a walk jog and um, actually felt not great, but I wasn't also... Uh, I didn't have any kind of hinge or anything in my step. And so I figured it was okay to kind of flush the legs a little bit. And so I was able to run a little bit after. And then I took some time. I took a couple of days where I just didn't do anything. Um, and so I think having a little bit of both is probably good in the recovery process. What if, uh, Let's go back to the Achilles injury. So, I mean, you and I know the context at which it fell. Um, you started with it kind of beginning of August, end of July. 
and it was able you were able to maintain training for about a week and a half two weeks we had to cut a couple of sessions short because it was starting to flare up but then it got really flared up when you tried to run the Falmouth road race in August yeah so I tipped it over at Falmouth and then wasn't really able to walk at all after and so running obviously wasn't an option Luckily, I work at a PT clinic, so I had a ton of people to kind of look at me, and then um, I ended up seeing one of the docs there, and uh, they were able to kind of provide me with some insight. So I got an MRI, and they, they looked it over and found a coalition in my left foot, and so my subtalar joint uh, is fused, and it's only on my left side, which explains why I've, if I've Such had an injury, it's, it's always yeah. been on my left side. So... Um, I really kind of only had two options, and uh, the surgery option wasn't something he was willing to do on me. So typically for that, they'll lengthen the calf. Um, but for me, he offered to try a PRP shot, but it's really a 50-50 chance on what that's going to do. Um, so I ended up getting the shot just because otherwise I wasn't sure that New York was going to be a possibility. And so I got the shot, took a few days and cross-trained, and then I was able to kind of resume training right after. I had some calf issues uh pretty much for the remainder of the buildup, but obviously I was kind of able to train through all of that. Um, not something I would have done typically, but because I had committed to New York, I really wanted to see it through. And so I was able to kind of get through the bulk of what I wanted to, but obviously we had to, you know, take a little bit of an interruption there, which um, was not ideal. So Alex is really smart and used a lot of scientific words in that explanation. So I'll try to decipher so when he talks about the subtalar joint, it's the part of the ankle that controls most of your range of motion. It kind of forms like a hinge underneath where the bones of your lower leg meet up with the, the part of your ankle and the foot that kind of go up and down. So he has a fusion there that limits his full range of motion of that ankle. That's a genetic condition that doesn't, that doesn't happen just over time. But what it causes is a shortening of the calf and the lever arm that that Achilles has to work with. And so when you're doing a lot of sustained loading, the susceptibility for that Achilles to get irritated is going to be high. And so he ended up with an Achilles injury. Now on the MRI, the Achilles was thickened, but there was no tearing, which was encouraging. Now PRP would help with either one of those, whether there was a partial tearing or whether there was just a thickening. But we were fortunate in the sense that he just had the thickening without any tearing. What PRP is, it's called a platelet-rich plasma therapy. And it's where they'll take some of your red blood cells, they'll isolate it, they'll centrifuge it to isolate the immature growth factor. And then they inject it back in at the site of tissue damage to try to expedite some blood supply to that tendon to help it heal a little bit quicker. Injection itself can be really, really painful. And you experienced that even like yeah. weeks after the injection site was really sensitive. Yeah, I mean, it still is. Like if you just squeeze that spot, um, I jump off the table. So yeah, it was uh, one of the more one of more of the painful things that I put myself through. Now, some people listening at home might wonder, okay, is PRP like something that's a commonplace within injury stuff? What is USADA, WADA, IAAF rules fall on it? PRP is funny because it's it's not a performance enhancer. Basically what it's doing is in areas of poor blood supply like ligaments and tendons, there's some debate whether it has any efficacy whatsoever. From my experience with a health from a healthcare side, 
depending on the practitioner that's applying it and the, depending on the location and the extent of tissue damage, it can help. But it's not the end-all be-all. It's the application combined with the progression and the strength and everything that is done afterwards that really helps the success of, of, of the injection itself. Now, the ortho that applied it to Alex's is a really good foot and ankle ortho. His name's Dr. Leland here in Boulder, Colorado. And I trust him. He's done rotations through the U.S. Olympic Training Center. He's really a good foot and ankle doc. In Alex's case, Dr. Leland felt because there was no tissue damage, he had the ability, he could even try to jog the next day if he wanted to. But the soreness from that injection was so high that we gave him a couple days to kind of reintegrate back into running. So at this point, we were 10 weeks out from New York City Marathon. He missed, I think it was three or four days after Falmouth of non-running. You just, you swam a little bit. You rode the yeah, bike Yeah, I cross-trained for those, those days. Then you tried running for three days. It was sore, but you were able to do it. I was able to run, yeah. But then that Monday following Falmouth, it was, or it was like eight days after Falmouth, it was really sore. So then you got PRP on that Tuesday. You missed another three days of running while you just cross-trained. You did some light walking. You did some swimming. And then on that Friday, we had you on the Altergy at my office. Yep. You did an 18-mile run <laughs> on Sunday, yep. which was not the most enjoyable because of one, you're on a treadmill, on two, you're on the yeah. Altergy, and yep. it feels like you have a giant wedgie the entire time that Correct. you're running on that. Yeah. Very comfortable. But you came off of it really well, and so we knew that, like, okay, well, even though you're at a reduced body weight, like, you were able to tolerate the loading. So even though, like, you had this hiccup in training, and then you had the progression back in, it was maybe a four- to five-week adjustment, like, even going back before Falmouth, mm -hmm. which isn't ideal in a marathon buildup, but we were encouraged that you were able to return to training so quickly afterwards. Yeah, I think it's one of those things where after the injury um, and going into New York, we were able to look at it and be like, wow, we got through a lot. And now looking at it post-race, we're like, well, actually, we have a ton more that we could do. So yeah. um, two sides of the coin. And I think, you know, I'm happy with what I did post-injury because it was really all I could do. But at the same time, um, hopefully next buildup, when I don't have any interruptions or injuries, I can actually um, do what I had set out to do in terms of training. And um, it doesn't mean that I worked any less. It just meant that I had to kind of ride the fine line of not tipping over the calf um, after the injection, but also being able to do as much as I could to be ready for New York. Yeah, I think when we look at like the marathon pace, like we had to kind of specify 505 pace, right? And 505 would be around 213. And so if you look at like the specific marathon pace work that you had, you had one eight miler at that, you had one 12 miler at that, and then you had a couple thresholds that were shorter than that. So that's not ideal. I mean, you have two stimuluses that are like decent, especially at altitude, but not nearly the volume at that stimulus that we would have had had you not had the injury. Same thing with some of the long runs. Like, I mean, it's funny because I look back at Noah's training when he had his Achilles thing going into Chicago last year. He ended up running 216. He had like six runs of 18 miles. Um, I don't think he had a 20 in there. I'd have to look back. 
Um, you had about six to seven at 18 to 22 with your longest being 22. That was at a relatively controlled pace because we got snow on that day. Um, not much in terms of like up-tempo long runs that would have really mimicked some of the strength you would have needed for that marathon. Now in the moment when you're doing the training and we're having to adjust stuff because of the Achilles, you're still, like you said, we're, we're thinking the fitness is coming along and that we're encouraged by that, but maybe not going out at 212 pace. Yeah, I think, you know, as good as I was feeling, then I, I recognized that sitting between two packs wasn't normal. And so going out with a 212 group, I just realized it was a risk that I was going to take. Um, I obviously paid for that, but I also know that, you know, crazier things have happened than somebody having an abbreviated buildup and still running really well. So um, I decided to roll the dice, and it didn't it didn't go the way I had planned. But also, I also knew that I in those ten weeks after the injection, I did everything I could, and we couldn't really push more than we had been. And so now we know, and um, going into the next buildup, I'll kind of be wiser for that. So well, and I don't think I mean so that brings us to the the next part of this whole thing like i told you like afterwards like yeah 212 was a little like 66 212 pace was a little aggressive through half however you gave yourself a chance to run a really good debut yeah is it dumb it depends on perspective okay well if you play it safe and you have a safe debut at 215 216 do we get any feedback of how your body's going to respond at that faster pace Maybe you hold 216 pace. Maybe you, maybe if you go out at 6730, you blow up and run 220. Like we don't, it's hard to question like that now yeah. when we don't know what the end result would be of going out a little slower. No, some people will look at it as careless, but I, I actually don't. And I, I only say that because, not to defend myself, but just because that I knew to run the, the time that I wanted going out at that pace was required yeah and, and if so you even split it would be different if race. i ran out in 65 minutes um but that that wasn't the case and so i yeah. knew we were on the the top end of of what i could do it gives us some context as to what you can tolerate right now yeah it's a tough course you go out 6609 you're able to tolerate that through 18 and then the body just tells you it's had enough yeah but it left me encouraged because you're able to tolerate 18 that's to 12 to 13 pace on a tough course yeah and we were saying if you're on a flatter faster course something like a chicago a berlin a frankfurt where you're going out 66 pace and maybe you start struggling the second half you're probably not struggling nearly as much as you did in new york with the hills right and it is hard i mean we do a lot of hills in training you did a lot of your tempos over rolling stuff you went up to mags which is historically rolling um you, you did a lot of sessions that would have indicated you had some decent strength, but it's tough to implement when you're at mile 18 on a hilly course, like it's tough to know. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's uncharted territory there and there's a lot of unknown and I knew that going in. So it wasn't as if I wasn't prepared for, for that to happen. It's just unfortunate that it had to happen as early as it did. And yeah, and everyone wants the the poetic romantic debut where everything feels easy and everything flows and just feels super, super smooth. Um, which is why some people go to flatter, faster courses for their debut. Right. I think it's, it's a tough one to do on your debut, but I think it helps you learn a lot more in terms of like 
where you're at, what you're capable of, what you need to adjust in order to tolerate the distance a little bit better. Yeah, and I think at some point or another before 2020, I wanted to get a hard course in. Um, Atlanta's not going to be flat, and so I'm glad I got that out of the way now, and, and maybe before Atlanta, I'll be able to do a, a faster one so that I get a little bit of both. Now, again, you went out hard, right? For 212 pace for New York is, is fast, but there's a lot made after the race on a lot of the media outlets about did the Americans fail at New York? The top American was Jared Ward at 212. Scott Fobble was second in that 212. I think third was Chris Derrick at 214, if I'm remembering right. But they made a, a large point to say that the Americans only have one sub-210 marathoner over the last however many years. You look at Kenya, you look at Ethiopia, Japan, a lot of countries have sub-210 marathoners. We saw Parker Stinson try to go out hard at CIM and fade, go out hard at Chicago and fade, but he gave himself a chance to try to sniff that 210 along with a couple other Americans. 212 may not be that impressive on the international scale, but for New York, it's a pretty good time. What do you think it, it'll take for American marathoning to move up to that international level? Do you think sub-210 is a way to define that? Do you think it's something where we don't know necessarily are doing the right things in training? Or is it not enough people taking the risks to go out harder and see what happens, knowing that those blow-ups are possible? Because as you saw, you don't race a lot on the build-up. You can maybe do two of those buildups per year. So is it genetic potential or is it more of a fear factor that people don't want to sacrifice all the work they put in for four months for something that could go, like you experienced, terribly wrong very quickly? Yeah, I think I don't think it's a training error and I also don't think it's a an error in, in terms of who we have running so well right now. I think the depth is there, um, but the, the results on paper maybe are not and I think it's just a matter of time. I think in New York, it was actually a pretty good day for American men. Um, and I would also say that, you know, Parker Stinson makes a good point in that, you know, I don't think enough people are maybe taking the risk because of fear of disaster and, and exactly what I just experienced. So um, I don't regret the way I raced. And I don't think if you go out like that, that you should regret it. It might look bad on paper and it probably looks bad to the rest of the running community. But um, in terms of going for it, you know, I don't think we'll ever reach that sub 210 point um, in American distance running unless we take those risks. And, you know, it's it's tough in New York because the course is so hard. And so I think that makes it a little bit of an exception. But uh, in terms of these faster courses like Chicago or Berlin or or um, like something like Frankfurt, something like Frankfurt, yeah. I think the risks probably have to be taken there. Um, and so, you know the weather in Chicago is a little different. So maybe that also gives you another exception. But at this point in time, I think it's possible for it to happen. It's just a matter of time. Now, obviously it's hard to predict based on buildup, based on injury, based on health, but can you see yourself going out any other way in future marathons? Like, oh, no, not at all. You I, don't I, want to run two fifteen, two sixteen. No, that's not the goal. I think a lot of people can do that. So I'm, I, you know, if I'm going to be a marathoner, I'm going to make sure that it's um, a good one. So I'm not not interested in running uh, those times. And then that's that's where we end up now, right? Like you sacrifice sometimes running the solid time 
for the time that you think that you're capable of, even if the result doesn't end up being the way that it is. I think it's very rare you see Meb run a 218. You either see him run 212 or faster, or you see him run a 222, 224, right. which he's run a couple times. Right. I think, I mean, I want to find some consistency, and so that also is very important to me, but it also, you know, making a name for myself, um, I think it's going to require a breakout day, and so that was what I was in search of in New York. So I think we can be disappointed that the end result is a 226, especially in a debut. You want the debut to go decently. But I think the way that you raced is something that I wouldn't discourage you from doing. And that's up to us in the planning process to get you in the fitness level that you can sustain that longer and be able to tolerate it to the finish. Right. Or that your body doesn't start shutting down at the point that it did to the point that you can't tolerate that. But... The hope is, especially with, again, I left New York feeling encouraged about the state of American marathoning. I felt encouraged about your potential at the marathon. I'm excited about the potential Noah has at the marathon. I think if more people, it's not to raise dumb. If you're a 220 potential guy, don't go out at 210 pace and Mm -hmm. then like pray you hang on. But if you're somebody that has the accolades to be able to go out and try to run that 210 effort, that 212 effort, to put yourself in that conversation of what it does take to not only make a U.S. Olympic team, but to compete at these world marathon majors, you can sleep easy at night even if the outcome isn't necessarily what you envisioned. Because at least you're doing something that's trying to improve the current state of where we're at. So I thought you ran great, even if it's the result is hard, hard to swallow. Yeah, I mean, there's no regret there. And I think, you know, if I had to go do it again, it would be done the same way. Um, yeah, it would be nice on paper to have a different result. But at the same time, I wasn't, um, I was in search of a breakout day and a, and a nice debut. And, and so anything that was in between that and what I, what I ended up running wouldn't have been any more beneficial for me. So I learned a lot and I'm still able to take some positives away and I'm, I'm coming away uh, much stronger from it. Outside of your body shutting down at mile 18, um, was the distance what you expected it to be? Yeah, 100%. I think everybody talks about how bad the wall is. And so I, obviously had been prepared for that and so now going through it I mean yeah it's bad but I'm I'm you know I'm not afraid of that and I think you know the the distance requires some respect and so I wanted to give it that and and that's what it got and so um yeah it's a whole different event and I'm looking forward to kind of learning that I'm assuming you're gonna want to do a marathon soon what do you have coming up in the future to kind of satisfy your palate for competition in the meantime. Yeah, I don't think the a spring marathon is in the cards, but I think, you know, some cross country is. And so uh, making the world team would be really, really awesome. Um, I've, I've had a ton of success in cross country. And so um, that's kind of been where my, my strong suit is. And I would like to make that world team. Um, it actually ends up being on my birthday in Denmark. So I think that would be pretty cool. And then Beyond that, hitting the 10K standard would be really nice. I've been I've been looking to break 28 um, ever since I ran 28.17, and it just hasn't been there. So um, I think getting back down to some shorter stuff, maybe another half marathon, and then, um, yeah, gear up for potentially a fall marathon. 
what do you look forward to in the next couple of weeks in terms of you don't have any structured hard training on the schedule do you enjoy down downtime do you, do you like vacation like, <laughs> yeah i think everybody it, when you train that hard for for that many months i think anybody likes some vacation but i also you know i also kind of miss the structure of the day and so after uh, a lot of vacation then i decide that it's also time to get back to work because that's what i what that's what i enjoy doing i think you you find runners in different categories in terms of what why they enjoy the sport and sometimes it's because they actually just like racing they don't necessarily love the training and then um, I find myself on the other side of that where I actually really love preparing for something and then being able to see the end result so I actually enjoy training and so yeah I in, also enjoy sitting on a beach and and um, having adult beverages how but I also you, how could you not but I I on the same side of things I you know, structure to a day isn't a bad thing. So, um, I think I'll enjoy this next week and do things that I don't normally get to do during training and then, um, get back into it and, um, enjoy the, the grind of things again. What, from a professional running standpoint, was that something you always intended to do when you were in college? Uh, what's that? Like just pursue professional running post college? No, no, I, I honestly didn't think I would run past college. And then I just had a lot of success. I think seeing myself um, running after just even in high school, I didn't think I was uh, potentially going to run well or be able to run in college, but I had a really, really great senior year. And so then college was like a very good possibility. And then when I got done in college, it was a, like, okay, let's see what I can do further. So then I decided to give it a go and um, it just continued to get better and better. And so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it as long as I can. What would you consider a long term successful career? Like, what would define that? Uh, I want to make a world team. I think making international teams is great, but making that coveted world team would be huge. And so, if and I you've get... had a taste of that, right? You've made Edinburgh. Yeah, so I made a junior team in college, and then I made a yeah, I made the the international team that goes to Edinburgh for cross country. So. Making that world team in cross country would would check that box, and then I'd also, you know, I'd have to find some new goals. But um, I think I'm I've got a lot of opportunity there. Um, obviously, everybody's goal is to make an Olympic team, and so <clears throat> I would like to be in the conversation in 2020. I have a long way to go to get there, but I think 2020 and 2021 provide some really great opportunities for me to do that. And and so leading into that, I'm going to give it everything I have, and and act like you know that'll be my last opportunity at that final piece of advice for someone going into their first marathon <laughs> going to the first marathon um i'm not going to sit here and tell you that the the wall is really really bad at 20 because that's what everybody told me and it got pretty annoying but i will tell you to just enjoy it and um embrace uh, a completely different event that you know even if it is the hardest thing you do you'll finish and and feel like you most likely want to do another one which is how I felt. So, my dad. How exciting was it coming off of Queensbridge? Yeah, at that point, I was still feeling uh, actually pretty good, and um, I had a ton of uh, college teammates. Some of them now leaving, living in Queens. They were right off the bridge, able to kind of cheer me on. Um, and so, coming off of that, there were times where it was almost deafening. Um, the screams coming from both sides. So. Yeah, it's just it's a unique experience that you kind of get to get that 
um, excitement from um, just about everybody in the city. So um, it's a unique experience and, and one that I'm still very thankful for. Would you want to experience that again? Yeah, I'd okay, go through. I'd, I'd go. Th- yeah, I'd go through it all again. Absolutely. All the waves of emotion. All of it. Hopefully, without the bonking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'd be nice if I could not bonk as early as I did again. <laughs> Maybe a little closer to twenty-six miles. But at least now you could say that you've experienced that wall. You came out the <laughs> other side. Yeah. And you can have some perspective on what to do the next time. Yeah, I'm just telling everybody now that the walls. You know. It's not actually that bad, even though it was pretty awful. I'm just going to tell them that so they stop telling me about it. Yeah. And you're still moving pretty well on the streets (laughs) in New York afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to run the next day, which is huge. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I'm excited for the next one. We still grabbed a burger that night. Yeah. Yeah. I was able to eat that night, which was great. Yeah. Yeah. Marathons aren't that bad. (laughs) (laughs) Bad in the moment, but uh, not something that made me never want to do it again. Yeah. All right, well, we got a lot to look forward with you. We'll do some recaps after some of your future races. Um, In the meantime, we'll have some new podcasts coming out. I know we've been a little lax with that of late. That's on me because I've been busy traveling to to our team's races. Um, I'll make sure on our next podcast, I'll also give a recap of some of the performances we had in the spring and again this fall. A couple new athletes, Alex being one of them, Lexi Zeiss, a talented D2 runner as well, being another So we'll make sure to have her on to kind of give a little context uh, to her backstory. Um, Thanks, Alex. Thank you. And we'll have you back soon.